So, Brett, I just wanted to share something with all the listeners. Oh, no, don't. Oh, actually, they can't see it anyway. So no, they can't. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Brett. But, you, you know, all, all your years in the, in the rock and music industry in Australia, um, you've come across some very interesting characters, yeah? Sure have, George. Lots. Lots. And, you know, you even, even one of your band members, uh, Peter Travis, who we interviewed recently, yep. uh, he's the walking encyclopedia on the history of... All things, All things music. Music, 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 music fashion, music art, music pop. Right, right. So what I wanted to tell tell our listeners is that uh, we, we're, we're about ready to launch a sideline Float Your Boat podcast, which is... Float Your Boat rocks, so rocks, 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 rocks. <laughs> so what's it, what's it going to be about? Well, it, it, it's going to be about the behind the scenes of music, not just interviews with with band members or singers or famous people. Because mm, they've been done to death. Yeah, we, we want to get right, right behind the scenes to the roots of music, fashion, art, you know, subcultures, anything to do with music. I think that's, uh, that's quite exciting, certainly for, for someone who listens to a lot of music, um, knowing the history and the background and, and all the things that went with it uh, would be very exciting. So if you love Float Your Boat, you're going to love Float Your Boat. Rocks. Rocks, rocks, rocks. Welcome to the Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. So welcome everyone to another episode of uh, Float Your Boat. I'm George Savados. And I'm Brett Pattinson. So today, Brett, we have a lovely lady by the name of Kilty O'Brien. Um, she's quite a, a social and political activist. She certainly and, is. And uh, I know um, Kilty from our, our area. Mm. Um, and as you know, we've, you and I have been involved with the uh, Bondi Surf Club uh, renovations or whatever you'd like to call it. And um, Kilty is currently working on a big project, which is Save... Uh, save the Bondi Pavilion. Yes, well, she she has quite a, quite an interesting bio, but it uh, it goes back uh, quite a few generations. Certainly uh, does. Very politically active family, which she'll explain during the interview. But you know, for her, she's you know she's held various roles uh, as as part of Justice Action. She's been part of the Community and Public Services Union. Um, she also travelled to South Africa with her grandmother. Um, gathering, uh, contributing to the dissolution of um, apartheid in South Africa, which is quite... Quite a, remarkable. That is remarkable. Quite a remarkable um, choice that people make not to pursue an economic gain, but to to pursue the greater good for the Fairness. public. Fairness. Fairness. Jumps to mind. So she me. rails against the machine. She, yeah. uh, you know, she uh, takes up the fight. Um, and, you know, one of the sad 
one of the sad things about I think in this, the modern age is that people just don't show as much enthusiasm as they used to. Well, I think the important thing for you and I is, which we talk about a lot and we're trying to move forward with, is is giving back to the community. And Kilty is one of those people that, since I've known her, um, has always given back to the community. And she doesn't do it for anything other than fairness. Mm. She doesn't do it for the accolades or for her ego. She does it purely for the goodness of other people. And she's not running her life according to the, the bottom line on a P&L. She's actually looking at the human side of things and trying to try, trying to create fair and equitable outcomes, which is admirable, I think. So certainly is. So we get her. Let's get, let's her, get in. her in. Let's That's get her right. in. We did a whole preamble today without making one single joke. <laughs> That's a joke in itself. <laughs> So your granddad, even though he was a peace lover mm-hmm. and an activist, mm-hmm. he actually went to war. Yeah, like my grandma well. travelled around Australia raising money for war bonds. Right. And they supported the they supported the war the war, and they were speaking out against fascists and the Japanese. While at the time when Menzies was still supporting Japanese and the fascists, so they there was actually a change more in the conservative policy before World War II to start fighting them because there was a time when we were, as a country, were supporting them. Yes, hence the um, the, the moniker uh, Pig Iron Bob yeah. because he was sending scrap yeah. metal to yeah. uh, Japan, yeah. fueling their war machine, yeah. just like yeah. their arm- yeah. rearmament program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he really was a, a staunch supporter of, of uh, the Japanese up until the war broke out. Yeah, yeah. And, and no, so, one, no one hung him for that. No, it's not really part of our, when we discuss the war, you know, as a, as a young person, apart from my family knowledge, mm. I don't think I would have been aware of that. And I'm only reminded when I'm like looking at the book launch for my grandma and SBS did a documentary on her and... Mm. She's speaking about her own life and she talks about how she, you know, took that position on the war and why they took that position. It's pretty amazing because, you know, there were so many veterans that came back from World War II who saw the, you know, they, they experienced lots of bad things. and But there were so many floating around Australian society after the war and yet Bob Menzies got a 16-year run in government. Um, and you would think that that wouldn't happen because there was a lot of questions about why he didn't serve in World War One. Mm. He was labelled a, a coward. Mm. He had no real excuse mm. for not serving. Um, and then he supported the Japanese mm. well until the breakout of the war. Mm. And so many people were against him, yet he managed to carry power yeah. it's for a really sa- interesting, 16 years. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to look at it. Something I never never was able to explain to myself. Yeah, like the the yeah. history books don't say very yeah. much. Yeah. Well, and yeah. he still holds um, what he's one of the few prime ministers of that era that people, even young people, would know the name. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. There was a lot of prime ministers. Yeah. Um, but his name, you know, even in modern politics, his name gets mentioned a, a hell of a lot. Yeah, it really does. You know, it really does. Which is interesting. Yeah. Mm. So, so, this leads to my the obvious question, like, what was it like growing up in a politically active family? Well, as a child, I wasn't really aware that it was a politically active 
family. You know, it was a very loving and stable household mm. where we had uh, two brothers, um, my parents, my grandparents. My dad was from Ireland, so his family lived, uh, most of his family lived over there. So to us, it was just <coughs> kind of normal going out and doing things, playing with kids on the street. But there was political discussion in the house all the time. Now, as an adult and I look back, and we did go on weekends to May Day marches when they'd be on and Hiroshima Day rallies. And, again, that was kind of normal for us as well. Um, My parents and my grandparents taught me and instilled from a young age that it's also about acceptance of other people's views. So we weren't brought up in a religious household, but you respect other people's right to believe in their religion and you respect yeah. other people's mm. views yeah. and discussion is important. And it's also important to think about how you could get involved to maybe change something if you don't agree with it and the importance of speaking out and of the collective working together to move towards progressive change. Where did you grow up? In Bondi Junction. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Born and bred, eh? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're, you're speaking of what I consider to be the, the, the golden era before the, the rise of the internet, um, which, which has had its pros and cons. People seemed like, it might just be my, my, my viewpoint, but, but it seemed like people were more politically active prior to the internet. Well, I, I think you're right, and all active in a different way, um, and maybe not as jarred. There was a little bit more hope that you could your actions could lead to change. Mm. I think people there are a lot of people are tired now, and they're jaded. Yeah, and is not that, hopeful. Is that because there's too much in your face on Facebook and all the other social media platforms? So many opinions um, that. I think People it's that, just and we're tired of it. I think we also feel like we're re- all really busy, and we are all really busy. And it's, um, but this kind of clicktivism term that people use that if you want to be active, you click on a petition or you click on a link and you have made a contribution. And that, that is worthy, that is an important way to contribute. Um, But I think going back, like what you were talking about, the golden era, there wasn't the internet. So people had to come together as people in a room to meet. People had to ring each other to organise things. You had to um, come together to put stamps on envelopes and address the envelopes, these simple things to get the message out to your supporters and your constituents. There are great strengths that have come from the internet in terms of organising and letting people know what's going on, but that the importance of people actually coming together and discussing things and throwing ideas around, that's how I think often great ideas are developed and the importance of on-the-ground um, activism, that you direct action plays a really important role in change occurring at a higher political level. Mm. So you might have direct action where people are chaining themselves to something, protesting out front of someone's office, this kind of stuff. That actually complements the work that people who are meeting with politicians and 
a more professional approach, that complements that role in progressive change as well and is more likely over time to lead to a positive outcome. So all of these different areas of activism has an important role in any campaign. Well, let's get back to, um, you know, your grandparents, who I'm guessing were the start of the political activism within your family. They actually weren't. It goes back. It goes back further. Well, tell us the story. My grandma grew up in Erskineville and her father was very political. He lost his job leading up to the Depression and joined the Unemployed Workers Union and they met regularly and discussed um, the issues that were facing them and worked together for collective change around these issues of extreme poverty, job loss, the need to um, look after and support your family when having nothing. Um, so I my, imagine that was hard for him at the time. Like, I think it would have been incredibly hard and hard for my grandma and her two brothers who grew up in the Depression who grew up uh, without, you know, proper clothes, having to go and ask for food at certain places. These are all stories that my grandma told that formed part of who she was from a really early age. But, again, they grew up with a really in a really loving and, despite all of that, really loving and really stable home life and community around them, despite the dire poverty. So she just grew up as a young woman born in 1919 from Erskineville with a father who believed she could do anything her brothers could do and encouraged her to do so. That's pretty amazing for for its day. Oh, it's absolutely incredible for its day. And the support that she was given from her parents uh, and her brothers throughout her whole life um, allowed her to achieve everything that she achieved. And um, it's really nothing short of remarkable for a woman of any generation to do what she did. But I think a young woman who grew up in such dire poverty in a little working class suburb like Erskineville to go on to become a, a, a world someone who was involved in progressive change all around the world and was elected to um, international women's organisations that met with world leaders and hosted conferences with world leaders and um, went into um, refugee camps in Palestine after some, you know, really big assaults by by the Israelis in the 70s, um, worked in... um, working towards ending apartheid on the ground with the women in South Africa, supporting them in other countries around Africa, Uh, hosted conferences with um, Mikhail Gorbachev in his time as president of um, the USSR that's now Russia, Uh, worked in Cuba with Fidel Castro. Uh, These were people who knew her personally and loved her personally. And then she'd come back to Australia and be a fantastic grandmother to us later in her life. Did she she regale you with uh, stories around the fireplace? Um, No, our family wasn't one, you know, for... My grandma saw herself as always as being part of the collective. 
always having a role that's no important than anyone else's role. Um, so my parents would and my grandparents would have probably been talking about that, but as a six or seven or eight-year-old child, I probably wasn't that... Interested. Yeah, or impressed. But but it's funny how it rubbed off on you. Yeah, yeah, it but, is, isn't it? But you had a mother in between, your yeah. grandmother, and, and obviously she took on uh, a lot of the cause as well. So she followed in the footsteps of her mother, um, uh, and, and so did you. Uh, but... But tell us a little bit about how you started, when you started to awaken and start railing against the machine. Um, look, I suppose uh, I left school before I finished my HSC and my parents... You could um, in those days. Pardon? We could in those yeah. days. <laughs> <laughs> my parents were obviously keen to help give me some direction. Yes. And some support. So I went to work for a family friend who had a printing and design business. Um, and he, through the printing and design business, he also supported a community organisation called Justice Action, which was a prisoner's rights advocacy organisation. So the profits of the business would help and still does to this day, run a community organisation. Um, and I worked in the printing area for a while and quickly started to work in justice action, you know, some weeks after that and saw that's where my skills were better placed. Um, Brett Collins was the owner of the business and still is today. He's a tremendous man who had a great mark on my life and someone I still consider a very close friend. He was convicted in the 70s of an armed robbery and spent a considerable amount of time in jail. And he was in jail during during the 70s, which led to the time that led to the Royal Commission into prisons, when there were some incredibly savage, incredibly savage bashings by prison guards of prisoners routinely. Mm. Um, it, it, it was just absolutely disgusting way that people in jail were being treated. Um, there were some famous riots that happened out at Grafton as a result at Grafton Jail as mm. a result of this treatment, and it ultimately led to the Royal Commission, which led to changes within the prison system. When Brett got out of jail, he worked with some other people. They received a grant for ex-prisoners for employment projects, and that's how Breakout was started. Mm. Brett's great credit, he never he broke his own cycle of criminality and went on to establish Breakout and provide employment for people who were coming out of jail and a support system. Um, this is one of the biggest issues facing people who come out of jail still to this day, and it's a real shame that no government has stepped up and done something about it, not just for the prisoners, but for all of us and all of our families, which could lead to a safer society. Prisoners come out of jail routinely with nowhere to live, with no job prospects, and these are the things that are going to enable them to be better human beings, better neighbours, better fathers, better mothers. Um, so I started working there at Breakout and at Justice Action. Um, we worked around increasing police weaponry, increasing police powers. This is a time when the Glock Glock semi-automatic pistol was being introduced to the New South Wales Police Force and capsicum spray. The government were trying to introduce laws where 
more than three people in a spot would be considered a gang and could be moved on by police. This obviously opens the door to abuses by police and especially often um, directed towards younger people and people from different ethnic backgrounds who are overrepresented in the police and the criminal justice system. And it was uh, particularly bad in Queensland, I remember, especially in the early 80s with uh, when Joe Bjorki-Peterson was in power. Um, I, I remember going up there with our band and because there was 10 of us, we couldn't congregate as a group because we would be arrested in the streets, mm. um, which we probably deserve to be, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I remember it being particularly bad in those times. That's right. That's the era of Russ Hines, yeah, the yeah. Minister for Justice, wasn't he? Oh, yes. Russ. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Russ. Yeah, yeah he yeah. was a pro- property he... developer on the side, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. Well, he was, he was a lot of things on the side. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, he had a lot of sides. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to the Russ Hines family. <laughs> My apologies. That's all right. You'll be, uh, you, your cement shoes will be built tomorrow. I think, so. <laughs> I think so. They're still into that habit up north, aren't they? Um, look, <laughs> look, so what? followed what followed from that i mean that sounds tremendous uh in in terms of what was achieved i know that was a that was a period of massive um change within the government across the board and paramilitary organizations across the board Mm. so the police were just Mm. one of those institutions Mm. um lots of stuff was being uncovered Mm. at the time and um like any organisation in transition, there was a lot of pain and anguish around around those years. Um, what years? What year was? Um, so I'm talking 1996 right. till the early 2000s. I would have worked yeah. there. Um, it's also a time that New South Wales, especially Victoria, were moving towards privatisation of prisons. Right. You know this whole idea that we treat prisoners as a commodity and that we need more of them. For these companies to make more ge- to, to make more money. Now, I don't think that's the right approach to crime prevention and to um, no. you know sentencing. Definitely. Not. Well, there's there's one particular conglomerate out of the states that wants to dominate the global private prison market, and um, and they're doing doing their damnness to get their their feet into Australia. Yeah. Um, but the the record that they have in the states. Is abysmal. It's absolutely appalling. Yeah, because it's all driven by profitability. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. People are just treated as trash. Mm. They become mm. a commodity. Mm. And yes, I know they're in prison. They're mm. prisoners that are con- mm. being convicted of crimes, but they're human beings first. That's right. Mm. And it's a very interesting, uh, very interesting to see how it's going to play out in Australia. And I think when we think of people in prison, most of us think about the top end, the people who have, you know, the eye for malats. Mm. Most people who are in jail are, um, dare I say, there for the grace of God goes someone that I'm close to or one of my family members. People do make mistakes. Mm. Uh, It doesn't make it okay, but these people are going to be re-entering our society. Mm. They are parents, 
there is intergenerational issues with a lot of this stuff. There's socioeconomic issues with a lot of the, a lot of the issues around criminal justice. Uh, as a society, in terms of crime prevention, ministers deciding about what we can do to make a safer society, the way we treat prisoners, especially upon the release and the support we're willing to give to them, can make a huge difference in the safety of our whole society. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. I, it wasn't that long ago I watched a Four Corners program or an Australian story program on the Shalom Centre in, in Perth. And it was an ex-drug ex dealer criminal who had this awakening one morning and then trotted off to church and he adopted, um, you know, the Christian values. But he, 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 cre he has a centre that, that has no economic cost to the state mm -hmm. and and the network of of uh, sorry they the network that he's created around jobs values and and inclusiveness mm. has meant that there there's almost been a zero reoffend mm. rate mm. and he's and he's his whole program is no cost to mm. the state. And I wondered why we couldn't do that across mm. the board, everywhere. Well, there's something that Justice Action has worked a lot on in the last few years in mentoring programs. Mm. And again, when prisoners come out of jail, if they are able to be paired up with someone who has had similar life experiences to them but has ended up making other decisions along the way or has been in jail but now is holding down a good job, that can really resonate with an in individual. And these are, again, great ideas for governments to embrace and allow to occur instead of just having heavy-handed approaches which are populists in the mm. lead-up to elections. This, you know, rhetoric of we'll build more jails, we'll sentence people for longer, we'll toughen up the bail laws, that might sound good, but it's not on the ground making a safer society. And it scars the individual that's part of that machine. Yeah. And they come out, they come out psychologically and physically damaged. Incredibly so. Yeah. And it wastes a lot of our money. Locking people up is really expensive. Yeah. It is cheaper in a lot of these cases to provide alternatives to imprisonment and greater support upon release. Yes. Well, if there wasn't a lot of money involved in that, uh, in that sector, that we wouldn't have private jails. Yeah. Yeah. Because they can see the... the, the, the profit that's right yeah yeah which which leads to the i mean so you, you did that for a number of years uh, yes. but what where did you move to after after that um and why did you move on so during this time that I was working in Justice Action, I met my husband. We decided uh, before we had kids, while we were young, to try living somewhere else, and we moved up to Darwin. Um, we moved up there both without jobs and. We got some casual work around the place while we applied for jobs. He got employed first and then um, I ended up getting a job as an organiser for the Community and Public Sector Union in Darwin, which was very interesting, organising issues in workplaces, um, but small workplaces, a lot of them weren't in Darwin. I did a lot of work in uh, public schools and organising issues for school staff, not teaching staff, uh, the people, the ladies at the front desk, the maintenance guys, these kind of people that hold the school together but are so under-recognised in the education system. And 
the issues facing smaller workplaces do need to be dealt with in a different in a different way and they're often forgotten because there's not as many people in that workplace so you've got really remote schools up in the northern territory you've got a lot of schools in Darwin, but you also have schools out in Nullumboy and um, Manangreda and remote Aboriginal communities, which take hours and hours to drive to or, you know, an hour flight. So that was a very enjoyable time of our lives and um, interesting work. Darwin is an interesting beast. Um, yeah, and we loved it. And then we so spent three years up in Darwin and then my husband, pregnant with the first child, um, my hu- we were going to move back to Sydney and my husband was um, offered a job in Catherine, which is three hours south of Darwin, and we took that and lived there for two years. And that's where Jack was born? Well, Catherine. we came back to Sydney to have Jack and be around right. our families right. and took him back when he was four weeks old. Right. And now, a word from our sponsors. This is about the 400th take, listeners. <laughs> this is our, uh, this is our um, for a male sponsor, Mungrel Joes. Yes, Mungrel Joes. So, hey, Brett, what keeps you going? I'm not sure what you're implying. I don't like where your mind's going with this one, Brett, but uh, without getting personal, there are many times I need a hit, and not from a bus. What keeps me going is a steaming hot cup of coffee, and not just any coffee. Ah, you must be talking about Mungrel Joe's. Yeah, our proud sponsor. Yes, that deep, rich, tasty and fulfilling coffee that perks you up, puts lead in your pencil, makes you glisten, and puts hairs on your chest. But what does it do for men? Boom, boom. (laughs) It brings out the mongrel in you. God, seriously, folks. Seriously, folks. Mungrel Joe's. That's my line. No, That's your line. Mungrel <laughs> Joe's is the best taste experience ever. It's 100% Australian. And not only is it a performance coffee, it's strong and smooth. Like me, of course, George. <laughs> it's the greatest coffee on earth. The world's greatest coffee. Is it earth. really? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Jump online at mungrelgoes.com.au and give it a shot. Excuse the pun. No, no, no. You didn't have to say that. Well, it's you printed it on the page. You're George. on. You're on fire, Brent. I am on. We fire. could have scratched that out. And just for our listeners to put, put it, put in a discount code, float your boat, and you will get a special discount on your first order. Remember that it's float your boat. One word. If you love coffee, you should try Mungrel Joe's. I'm telling you, folks. Aside from this great script that George wrote. <laughs> and it was so obvious you were reading it. <laughs> yes, George, it was. <laughs> anyway, listeners, Mungrel Joe's, it's, it's the best. Catherine was obviously another experience. It was a great place. Yeah, it's a great place. Very remote. Mm. Uh, My husband worked for the Aboriginal Legal Aid Service, so he would travel quite a bit to the remote communities to sit on bush court um, where they go out to the community and the magistrate goes out to the community and the prosecutor goes out to the community and they conduct court in those locations. Um, it's very hot yeah. <laughs> and sweaty. So, so bush court follows our our legal system, or is it slightly? Yes, different? no. It completely follows a le- 
the but legal. it's just not held in a courtroom. Yes, it's not held in Catherine. So their court would sit in Catherine, but it would right. also travel to not well, all communities, but an... some communities. Right. Well, um, and you followed your husband to the I didn't, bush courts? I didn't often go to the bush courts. I'd stay you know, home with Jack, who was quite mm. small. I mean, you know, these are they will be long and rough drives out to these bush courts. Yes. Um, he'd go with um, field, field officers, and we're very lucky to be embraced by the local community and also um, the local Aboriginal families who we came quite close to and had a, you know, a real close experience to the lands of the Northern Territory and to, you know, in, welcomed into people's lives. So then you moved back to Sydney after that experience? Yes, we moved back to Sydney in 2005 and we were pregnant with our second child who was born um, here a, few, you know, a month after we came back. So you thought the fight was, the, the fight got harder as you had more children? <laughs> the fight with who? <laughs> well, the children. Or maybe the children. The children. The children. Or maybe the, the mother. Or maybe the children fired her up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think then, um, you know, it, you have, as everyone knows, having small children keeps you very busy, um, re-establishing life in, in Sydney. Mm. Um reconnecting with family, finding somewhere to live. You know, the rental market was not easy to come into. It was, you know, really, really difficult. Mm. Um, then we had a third child. We had three children under four. Um, that was wow. a very busy time yeah. in our life. My husband um, left his permanent job and set up his own business. And what was that? Um... A, a, a criminal law firm. Right, okay. So where which he... he still has Yes, now. which he still yep. has now. Works there, so a few staff working for him and does some very important work. And you help out with that as well. Yeah, right? yeah, I work right. work there and helped him establish that. So, um, you know, so that keeps us, keeps us pretty busy. Mm. Um, and the kids are, you know, then all starting school and, you know, embracing that new change and settling into that. Then we got a little surprise by way of our fourth child. <laughs> Oops. Oh. You figured out what causes it? Yeah, now. yeah, I have. I must have missed that class Jaya. at school. Jaya. 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 Who started school this year. Oh, really? And right. is a... Gorgeous little thing, as they so all are. Whenever but she plays up, you you uh, you point out that she was a mistake. She was a happy decision. So, so can I um, can I just ask, um, which George asked before we came on air, but I'm interested. Where does Kilty come from? Kilty is an old Irish name. That was actually, um, my parents were reading a book and it was the name of an old grandfather in the book. Right. And they thought it sounded more like Leon a girl's Uris. name. Yeah. Very Trinity. good. Very good. Wow. <laughs> you Googled that before no. we came in, didn't no. you? <laughs> <laughs> I bet he did. No, <laughs> and it would have been a perfect book for your mum and your grandmother. Yeah. Because it was so I feel bad because I've, I've never read it. Oh, you have to read and it. And I think my brother's names are in there as well. It, it, Connor? Yeah, and yeah. Rory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. oh, so predictable. But, uh, but I mean, that was a fight for um, Irish independence. It yeah. was based around that and the, uh, you know, the unfairness of the system um, and how, how the Irish were treated like 
pariahs. Yeah. So my dad was and still is, you know, very much involved in the struggles that Ireland has faced in terms of, you know, becoming a republic and Northern Ireland and all of that. So, yeah, that's where that history would have come from. So he's still involved, but that that has quietened down a lot. Oh, very much so, very much so. since the dissolution of the USSR. Yes. And there's a lot of um, peace in the land now. Oh, incredibly. You can freely cross the border. Incredibly. And a lot of recognition should be given to those leaders who were able to transition from a war... Yes. To peace. Yeah. A lot of needless loss of life, though. Oh, I mean, incredibly. Really, at the end of the day, they've 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 shaken hands and mm. lived mm. side by side again. Mm. Crazy, right? Oh, it's tragic. But are they, But is there still a movement there to try and incorporate Northern Ireland into the Irish fold? Look, I um, probably couldn't speak to the detail of right, what's okay. going on mm. with that with that okay, movement. Let's, let's not. Let's not. Let's. Let's, let's speak no, let, to the detail of... Let's of, fast forward. Yeah, let's speak to the detail of what you're up to today, and which is more local. Yes. But equally as important to particularly people within Sydney. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So I um, got myself involved about a year ago um, with the campaign to save Bondi Pavilion. Um, Bondi Pavilion is, you know, one of our iconic treasures. It's, it's a global treasure. I think so. It sits there. It's on, a landmark that, you know, people all around the world recognize recognize yeah and for us locally it's our only community center it's our only space where um, classes can be conducted for children um, there's artist facilities and pottery facilities uh, it has a great history of community involvement cultural festivals Sadly, they've, these have been let run down. Mm. Uh, the pavilions become very degraded in the last ten years. It really does need an upgrade. Was that, do you think, in your opinion, intentional? I think it's completely intentional. Com- so there was a, a concerted effort um, from many years ago to try and lead up to the point of which you're at now. I think so. I think so. There's no other reason that we um, have for many years had in the budget of our local council, Waverley Council, money to repair Bondi Pavilion. And that hasn't been acted on. That the cultural activation of the area, which used to be very strong, has been let go to a point that not much is Mm. going on there. Which is interesting considering the the local view that uh, Waverley Council is a money-grubbing council, that they're out to... Well, I think it really raises suspicion in people, the, the way this whole process has been undertaken. It came about in December 2015. All of a sudden, a plan to cost us, us, the ratepayers, $38 million to privatise our community centre was tabled. There was absolute outcry. No, no discussion? Was, uh, there had been discussion around the upgrade to Bondi Pavilion, but that upgrade was a modest upgrade that would have renovated the building but kept its purpose. All of a sudden, we end up with this $38 million privatisation plan, which is going to lead to the loss of our community space. So there wasn't consultation about that. There was then consultation afterwards and people were invited to submit their views. There were over 700 submissions received, which is an incredible number in this day and 
message for mm. people and what you're talking about earlier, activism and people not feeling like they have time to contribute to change and how do you go about doing that. To receive over 700 submissions is incredible. There was only a handful, maybe under six, which in some way supported the proposal. The council ignored all of those submissions and moved to, you know... Yeah, I know that. Um, I know that with the surf club because um, George and I are heavily, me more particular in in the surf club, um, that they were talking to the surf club. Uh, yeah, in two thousand and fifteen, about the renovations to the surf club, which was adding on mm. the the back of our club, mm. um, the council chambers, mm. um, and it was and it was just slid under the desk yeah. really, and yeah. and uh, as. Ca- ca- a committee member, we didn't even hear about mm. it. Mm-hmm. It was a subcommittee that was set up for that specific purpose. Mm. But as a committee, we didn't hear about it until mm. early this year, uh, 2000, mid-2016, which, which I think is appalling. Well, the, just... the veil of secrecy was the surprise because, um, you know, I mean, if you if, if you attempt to try and renovate your house and the council receives 600 submissions mm. for that not to go ahead they would act it doesn't within, go ahead mm. they would act within mm. a heartbeat within a heartbeat mm. right so so what's your thought as to why this was allowed to like slipping under the carpet. Look, I think what you hear from people in Bondi, and um, Brett's just given an example of that, people are suspicious. People are suspicious because they tried to hide hide the proposal when it came in. They've lied about other plans that have been available which would have been more acceptable to the community. They've been unwilling to listen to the community's views via submissions. They, um, The mayor is unwilling to attend community meetings. But then on the other side, she's very willing to spend time with developers in the area which are very, who are very interested in getting their hands on Bondi Pavilion, Oops, not yeah. for the good of the community and the people who live in the area or even the people who visit from outside, but for their own interests. Now, that's, I think people around Sydney are getting fed up with this. People are getting fed up with councils making deals or making arrangements that don't benefit the community but benefit a select few. People want their councils and their local members of parliament to be more accountable. We live in one of the second most densely populated area of Sydney. Our area is booming. Our schools are exploding exploding to the level that we're not going to have enough classrooms, not just at one school, but right across the area. The high schools are booming. Mm. Yet we are making no considerations for increasing community space. And what we're talking about here is decreasing community space. So just for people out there that don't know about the plans... Can you briefly outline what they plan to do? Yes, so the first plan that came out was a $38 million plan which would privatise the upstairs and the balcony of Bondi Pavilion and also build a a very expensive glass box in one of the back courtyards of the building and um, the other courtyard which has been famous for hosting lots of festivals and concerts in its heyday will be um, ruined with a new toilet block. Mm. 
They have now adjusted those plans um, slightly and taken the controversial parts out of the DA that's going through at the moment, which I think is a sneaky political move. It is a whole building and it should be looked at as a whole building and the public should be aware of the plans for the whole building rather than just part of it. But as it stands at the moment, they will be just getting rid of the bucket list, which a lot of people would know at the front, has an addition, a bubble addition, a glass bubble addition, which council approved themselves. They now want to take that off um, and remove the Northern Courtyard space to build toilets in. And when you're talking about the surf club before, this is another one of my concerns. They're building a new road that Mm. will cut through the parkland where kids freely run across Mm. and in quite a narrow narrow side, which the surf gets very busy with the surf club's usage. And it makes no sense because where the toilet entrances are is where we move our surf crafts, which are on, Mm. like, it's dangerous to It is actually dangerous. You know, you get loads of tourists coming Mm. down there wanting to go to the toilet and there's surf club lifesavers that volunteer... Mm that are trying to get their gear into mm. the sheds, um, moving up that side passage. It's only as wide as this studio, yeah, which is about tw- 12 feet. But I know, I know a lot of our listeners can't visualise that, and, and what, what I'm, I think they would probably be interested in is, is what is motivating all this, in your opinion? I think um, what's motivating it is a lack of willingness to work with the community and a very active willingness to work with developers in the area. But I don't get it. I mean, they're elected officials to represent the locals and and there's a level of, I mean, are there not checks and balances within the within the council? I mean, for, for a start, what I don't understand is how anyone could deny what's going on when everything that's done at council is a matter of public record or should be. Yeah, our council has... Um has a major has a majority um, that goes away of the mayor under the Liberal Party. One of the um, Liberals has broken away over the Bondi Pavilion issue, and her ward covers Bondi Pavilion. So she's decided to work with, listen with to her community rather than the mayor's driving interests. Which has which has created a bit of breathing space now for the. For you? Well, it hasn't because the motions and the development could still get through on the casting vote of the mayor. She has a casting she vote. She has a casting vote. That can, that still swings it Knowing her way. Full well that she hobnobs with property developers. And I suppose one of our other concerns is that accountability that you discuss should be coming from the state government. Bondi Pavilion is not owned by Waverley Council, it mm. sits on Crown land. Waverley Council are the trustee and it's legislated that it is there for the purpose of public recreation. Now, I think in the end we will win this and we will ensure that Bondi Pavilion is retained as a community and cultural centre and hopefully it will lead to um, it becoming an even better place. But we shouldn't have to do this. No. We shouldn't have to be spending the time we are spending. We have. I work with a fantastic committee, absolutely fantastic. We're all doing this voluntary mm-hmm. for no other reason but a strong belief that our children and our community deserve a community centre. 
So, uh, so Kilty, how do people um, get behind this? Like, if you've got a platform for all of this? Yeah, we'd love people to check out our Facebook page, yeah. Save Bondi Pavilion. We've had some great support from, from some well-known Australians. Mm. Michael Caton um, is a big supporter of this campaign. Jack Thompson has done a fantastic piece for us. Yeah. Um, we, there's many, well, there's music studios down at Bondi Pavilion. Mm. Uh, there's Ben Harper learnt music or yeah. play down there sorry and ben lee learnt mm. his craft in the music studios at bondi pavilion and our kids are learning dance and yeah. uh, there's artists there's also i was walking through the back of it the other night it was to pick up my daughter from dance upstairs um and the amphitheater there at the back i was looking at it and i was thinking why aren't there shows here mm, anymore mm. like why isn't there open air shows that are free to mm. there's so many in the eastern suburbs there's so many young bands singers all sorts of yeah creative people that never get a chance to play anymore because the live music scene of australia is mm. dead because poker machines have been whacked yeah. in and you know, and so I think I it could also don't understand it. It could also provide great economic benefit to Bondi. I know mm. a lot of people think of Bondi as a very wealthy, um, you know, lucky area, but the reality for a lot of businesses in Bondi is it's really tough. Mm. It's not always a beautiful day in Bondi, mm. uh, and when there's lots of people there, it can be for a lot of the year quite empty, and those shops can be quite empty. Mm. If you're willing to activate this public community space, you're going to have people frequenting those shops around Bondi, having a meal before or after. This is um, really sensible ways to work with the community. We're so lucky in Bondi that we've got this wealth of um, goodwill that's come through this campaign, wealth of ideas about what you could do uh, with Bondi Pavilion to activate the music studios, to let people know that they're there, to, you know, maybe get some tourism benefit off that, to install a museum, to discuss a, um, the history of the culture of the beach. And uh, there's amazing stories that come from that area, but there's a lack of willingness from council to listen to any of these okay, and to what? take them on. I was actually going to mention that you mentioned, Kilty, that this happened 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. It's not the first time they've attempted mm. to privatise Bondi Pavilion. And oh, they, really? Yeah, 30 years ago there was a very big local campaign, very large local campaign to save Bondi Pavilion from a whole building privatisation. And ultimately that was won at the ballot box. That was won mm. by voting that council out. One of the... Um, issues we've had with our local council in terms of having that as a possibility is we have been subject to the forced amalgamations, but Wallara Council has taken it to the High Court, so we're in limbo. We don't know if we're going to be amalgamated, therefore leading to the opportunity to vote under an amalgamated so council. So vote until that's resolved. Or there may be a vote this September, but we don't know. Right. If uh, it's not resolved in the High Court soon, we will go to an election in September in Waverley. But this brings in another issue. It is not responsible for a council who is on the verge of amalgamating with other councils... To be doing this. ...such a heavy financial burden. Hmm. This is an, it's, it's not needed to spend $38 million to privatise a public building for 
commercial interests. It makes no sense. Uh, we, sh- we have Malcolm Turnbull, our Prime Minister, as our local member. This isn't a local council issue. It sits on Crown land. It's a state government responsibility. It is a federal, it's a national icon. It has heritage status. There is ample opportunity and reason that the Prime Minister can get involved in this and say, my local area deserves at least the community community space it has. In fact, let's look at building some more community space for our children to enjoy. That's a conversation we should be having locally rather than having to fight so hard to save the little community space we do have. I'm I'm assuming Malcolm's been very quiet on the subject. He's been very quiet and interestingly, our Mayor Sally Betts works for him. Right. Well, I don't know what to I don't know what to say about George that. George is flabbergasted. Because <laughs> George I'm, has been pushing you like George. I know George's thought is that it's all got to do with greed. That's what you're thinking, right? Oh, George? look, it, it, it's it's just a common theme amongst um, councils that I've observed over the years that they seem to have relations who are property developers. They seem to have parties with property developers. They go out with property developers, and you know, it's just insane to think that there's no kickback happening mm. because why would you be hobnobbing so mm. closely with property developers? I mean, we're talking about we're talking about real estate that is quite expensive, and you know, I can see how property developers salivate over real estate, but at the same time, there should be a, um, some kind of, I believe, arm's length between an alderman or a mayor and property developers. I think there definitely should be, 100%. And I think the state government also needs to look at what they're doing to keep councils in these situations accountable. Well, they've been awfully quiet. Awfully quiet. We we have been asking for a meeting with our local member, who also happens to be the Minister for Local Government, Gabriel Upton, and currently that request is being ignored. It is essential that our elected representatives are listening to what the overwhelming majority of people are saying. And on this, it is take your hands off Bondi Pavilion. Mm. You've got the budget to upgrade it, so upgrade the building. Upgrade it. Stop waiting. But in short, why I, I don't even understand why they don't just come out and embrace the importance of it as a mm. community and cultural centre. Celebrate that. Well, a more cynical me would say deals have already been done secretly and therefore people are committed. Well, you do you do hear that talk. Right. You do hear mm. talk around Bondi about um, about what the plans are. There has been um, our mayor has said to people on individually that we'll be looking at public private partnerships to fund it. So don't worry, we won't be using too much of your money. These are not acceptable uh, ways to proceed no. when it comes to a public building such as Bondi Pavilion. So there are a lot of these suspicions. That doesn't necessarily help in running a campaign. No. Um, the challenges for the campaign are keeping people engaged. Um, mm. We've been going for over a year now. We become tired. Our supporters become tired. Mm. Um, but we will be here for the, we will stay here for the long haul. We've had um, incredible support. The CFMEU the, have placed a green ban on the building, uh, meaning 
work will not occur there that diminishes community space until such time as the community are happy. Uh, we're very pleased for that support and very proud that mm. that's been able to achieve, be achieved. Um, and that's why I suppose I'd encourage anyone listening to go and check out the Facebook page. So that's the best place to That go. really is the best place. Check out some of the videos. Well, I just uh, absolutely, uh, but I do have one final question for you. And if you're if you're pushed, if it comes to this, you'd be prepared to go to take legal action as well. Uh, we would definitely be prepared to take legal action should that opportunity arise, and that is something we are always looking into and looking at options. We have um, are in constant discussion with lawyers. We have some very well known members of the legal profession uh, from Sydney who are on hand to give us advice as we need on the way through. Uh, as I said earlier, we are confident. We have a very strong and engaged community. This issue cuts across political lines. This yeah. doesn't. Um, sit in the corner of uh, the Labor people, you know, don't want it to go ahead and Liberals do. This crosses political lines. Mm. You have people um, from all people who vote in every way who support the importance of Bondi Pavilion being retained as a community centre. And and on a more important level, um, I I appreciate the fact that you're looking after the, the human element rather than the political and economic outcomes. Yeah. Kilty? I want to thank you for coming in. I do too. It's been lovely. Yeah, thanks, guys. I oh, enjoyed and, it too. And we're gonna. Uh, and you picked a particular song. Well, you picked a few songs, so <laughs> I had to pick. I had to pick from. I felt the, pressure the with pick, the song. And I thought, will I go serious? Will we go lighthearted? And and what did you, what did you do? I, I, well, I thought Jack and Diane was the one that oh, Jack and Diane. Nice. I good, like that. I mean, it's a, it's a classic song. It is a I mean, classic. It's, it's, not a song that, it's not a song that I listen to. It's what no, I don't listen. I don't listen to it often either. Yeah. But I was thinking back to these different stages of my life that yeah. I'd be talking about, and then I suddenly remembered I used to listen to that song all the time at the pubs. Was it was it uh, memories of Jaya's conception? No, not at all. Way before <laughs> then, she was a fourth child. This is free any children. Oh dear. Oh, well, well, on that sorry note. about that. That's too personal. <laughs> George always crosses the line. Oh dear. <laughs> Thanks, Guilty. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much.
Life goes on Long after the thrill Of living is gone Say Oh yeah Life goes on Long after the thrill Of living is gone They walk on Best they can. 